This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where I look at all of our favorite horror films. From the classic, the camp to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and as always, I am so thrilled to have you here. Now, before we get to what is on the examination table for this episode, I have an incredibly special guest for today. One of my nearest and dearest friends, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. I'm so excited that you could make the time to chat about this movie because when I decided to delve into the world of Hitchcock, you instantly came to mind. So Kevin and I worked together what seems like a gazillion in six years ago and we became very fast friends. We had a lot of shared interests, but one topic that would come up in conversation with some frequency would be movies and this brings us to the film that we are going to be talking about right now. So, Kevin, as you are my esteemed guest, would you mind in in mentioning what film we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Today, we are going to be talking about Rear Window. Yes! Absolutely. So, when we talk about classics, this is a classic in bold, caps lock, red text. (laughs) So, yes, we are delving into the 1954 Hitchcock classic, which many people actually rank fairly high. Um, amongst his work. And we're going to get into that, I think, a little bit when we talk about how it ranks for our kind of preferences. So I'm excited to kind of get into that. But in addition to talking about the 1954 film, there's also a remake that came out in 1998 starring Christopher Reeve. I try to focus also on uh, actors with disabilities and what they can kind of bring to the table, because obviously it's really important that That's kind of a center point of conversation when we talk about representation is it's not just the stories that are being told, but who's telling them and how are these stories being told? So when I discovered that there was a TV movie starring Christopher Reeve following his horse riding accident, I was super excited. And so you know that I had to do that extra credit homework and watch it and then in conversation with kevin leading up to the episode he's like yeah me too do you know me i also do extra credit so we're going to be talking a little bit about uh that version because i think there's some really interesting things um happening especially with a disability focus so that's going to be really really cool so i think with all of the intro business done, why don't we just get into it and let's start talking rear window. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt, but the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. Psycho. 
This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts, so lonely that even death seems like a friend. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. A genius or insane? This is the traveling salesman and his invalid wife. Out of their arguments and nagging comes a weird kind of love. Miss Torso, the body beautiful. That is, viewed from a safe distance. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. So the plot synopsis of Rear Window, I'm going to go to our dear friend, our hard, fast, our steady, our love, Wikipedia, never fails, and go through the plot. And Kevin, of course, at any point in time that you want to call out whoever submitted this plot synopsis as being inaccurate, um, <laughs> I encourage. Recuperating from a broken leg, professional photographer L.B. Jeff Jeffries is in his apartment in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. His rear window looks out into a courtyard and other apartments. During an intense heat wave, he watches his neighbors, who keep their windows open to stay cool. They are a lonely woman, whom Jeff has nicknamed Miss Lonely Hearts, a newlywed couple who just kind of enters frame and then closes the window so they can get down to pound town a pianist and a dancer named miss torso also a middle-aged couple whose small dog likes digging in the flower garden and almost as much as they like sleeping on the fire escape and the thorwalds he lars a traveling costume jewelry salesman and the wife uh bedridden with uh, an unknown illness Jeff is visited regularly by his socialite girlfriend, Lisa Fremont, and his nurse, Stella. One night after an argument with Lisa, Jeff is alone in his apartment and hears a woman scream, Don't! And the sound of breaking glass. 
Later that night, during a thunderstorm, he observed Thorwald making repeated late-night trips carrying a suitcase. But right after seeing kind of these comings and goings, he passes out. But the next morning, Jeff notices that Thorwald's wife is not to be seen, and he sees him cleaning a large knife and a handsaw. Thorwald also has moving men haul away a large trunk. Jeff becomes convinced that Thorwald has murdered his wife and shares this with Lisa and Stella, who believe him when they observe Thorwald acting suspiciously. Jeff calls his friend Tom Doyle, a New York City police detective, and asks him to investigate Thorwald. Doyle finds nothing suspicious, apparently, uh, according to his findings and his conversations with Mr. Thorwald, she just went upstate like many a dog from our youth. Mm-hmm. Soon after the neighbor's dog is found dead. Oh, that was bad timing. And <laughs> <laughs> the distraught, the distraught owner yells and everyone runs to their windows except for Thorwald, who sits quietly in his dark apartment smoking a cigar. Certain that Thorwald killed the dog, Jeff telephones him to lure him away so that Stella and Lisa can investigate. He believes Thorwald buried something in the flower bed and killed the dog because it was digging there. When Thorwald leaves, Lisa and Stella dig up the flowers but find nothing. Much to Jeff's amazement and admiration, Lisa climbs up the fire escape to Thorwald's apartment and clamors in through an open window. Jeff and Stella get distracted when they see Miss Lonely Hearts take out some pills and write a note. Realizing she is going to take her life, they they call the police, but before they can report it, Miss Lonely Hearts opening the window to listen to the pianist's music. Thorwald returns and confronts Lisa, and Jeff realizes that Thorwald is going to kill her. He calls the police and reports an assault in progress. The police arrive and arrest Lisa when Thorwald indicates that she broke into his apartment. Jeff sees Lisa coyly pointing her finger with Mrs. Thorwald's wedding ring on it. Thorwald sees this also and, realizing that she is signaling someone, spots Jeff across the courtyard. Jeff phones Doyle and leaves an urgent message while Stella goes to bail Lisa out of jail. When his phone rings, Jeff assumes it is Doyle and blurts out that the suspect has left. When no one answers, he realizes that it was Thorwald calling. Thorwald enters Jeff's dark apartment and Jeff sets off a series of camera flashbulbs to temporarily blind him. Thorwald pushes Jeff out of the window and Jeff, hanging in, um, kind of yells for help to the folks that have all kind of come out of their uh, apartments and the police presence that's next door. Police enter the apartment. Jeff falls and officers on the ground break his fall. Thorwald confesses to the police that he murdered his wife. A few days later, Jeff rests in his wheelchair, now cast on both legs, and watches the neighbors again. The couple whose dog was killed have a new puppy The newlyweds are having their first argument. Miss Torso's true love comes home from the war. Miss Lonely Hearts has started seeing the pianist. 
and Thorwald's apartment is being completely refurbished. Lisa is with Jeff, reading a book titled Beyond the High Himalayas. After seeing that Jeff is sleeping now, Lisa happily opens a fashion magazine. And that is the plot of Real Window. So, kind of initial thoughts and some initial conversation about the film. So, Kevin, one of the things that we connected when we would be talking about films was that we both really liked Hitchcock. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole Hitchcock is problematic conversation because aware. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, that could be its own kind of separate episode. People who make great art that really are just painful people when you dig into their histories. But, um, we both really liked Hitchcock. And I know that this was, I think, one of the films that you had mentioned along with some of the others. So when, when do you recall first seeing Rear Window and what was kind of like your initial reaction to it? Um, the first time I saw Rear Window, I would have been in high school. I am old enough that I was a teenager in the mid nineties and my, my first job that I had was working at a video store and this is like VHS tapes. This is before DVDs even like, so yeah, I worked in a video store and a a perk of that job is that you got free movie rentals, right? So that would have been when I first saw Rear Window was when I was in high school and looking back on it, I realized that I really didn't appreciate it as much at the time. I think back then I was really expecting more action. Like, like there's no, uh, there's no car chases and rear window. There's not like any like big action until the very end, I suppose. And so that's why I say, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but then as I became an adult and started to delve more into Hitchcock and got like all the box set DVDs, you know, rewatching it with a different lens or different view really began to appreciate it more and have then seen it multiple times since then, Mm -hmm. uh, including Rear Window is one of only two Hitchcock movies that I've actually seen on the big screen when I was in the early days of dating my now wife. Uh, She and I got to go see Rear Window at the AFI theater in silver spring oh cool uh, and that was really cool yeah I, I don't know if it added to my appreciation of the film i want to say that it did i don't know yeah. but yeah like growing up and appreciating the subtleties of rear window i think is really important to yeah my yeah uh, putting it much higher on my list of, of favorite hitchcock movies yeah going on that i think upon like uh repeated viewings you pick up on more of it. I agree. I this is one that I haven't seen on the big screen. I've seen The Birds, Psycho, North by Northwest, and Dial M for Murder. One of the cool things about this area is that in addition to AFI that will sometimes have screenings, there's a lot of other theaters here in DC that with some frequency will kind of do a series of Hitchcock films. Uh, it used to be the E Street Theater, which is downtown. They right. had this thing called uh, Capital Classics on the weekend, which I think was like a Saturday and Sunday matinees, or maybe, a, a, I don't know, it was on the weekends. 
I always went to like a Sunday matinee and that's where I, I think I saw North by Northwest and the birds, maybe. But now a number of other theaters around here do it as well. The Angelica pop-up, uh, usually around Halloween, will do a number of Hitchcock movies. And now that we have an Alamo Draft House in DC proper, mm-hmm. I know that they were doing a couple of screenings in October as well. So I definitely think that have like seeing a film that you've watched you know, even a handful of times, seeing it on the big screen always does, I think, in some way change your experience with it and your relationship with it as kind of you're building your ranks and where it stands amongst like that director's work. And was this like one of the first Hitchcock movies that you had seen or does, or had you kind of acquainted yourself with other kind of films and then came to this one? It was among the first. I do remember uh, watching Vertigo as an even younger, probably still a teenager. I don't think I watched any Hitchcock movies before I was at least a teenager, but I do remember watching Vertigo before Rear Window. But yeah, I was definitely among the first and has been, it's up there. Well, Vertigo is is my top, as you know, but Mm -hmm. yeah, like I put Rear Window right below it as far like, and I don't have a definitive ranking, certainly, but like, like if I was going to put the tier right below that, Rear Windows is definitely right up there. Excellent. Yeah, and there's a an article that I will link in the show notes that actually really does a great job piecing out some of the kind of disability-related themes and elements in Rear Window, connecting them also to Vertigo and really showing how similar these films are. And of course, you know, there's a lot of similarities between these two films. You know, our two stars, Jimmy Jams, Stewart, (laughs) and Grace Kelly were collaborators with Hitchcock, uh, with, uh, I think at this point, Stewart had already starred in the earlier Hitchcock movie, Rope, and then would go on to be in The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo. And then Grace Kelly would, or she had already been in Dial M for Murder that was also released that same year, and then would be in To Catch a Thief. Now, the interesting thing about Grace Kelly, of course, is that, which I, I find this absolutely intriguing. Rear Window was nominated for um, a very small number of Oscars and most notably for Best Director and Best Screenplay for Hayes. That same year, Grace Kelly was nominated for an Oscar for another movie, uh, The Country Girl. She was really having like this moment in her career. Also in 54, I think that is when Dial M for Murder was released as well. Because of course, back in this time, the kind of studio system was really kind of like a factory. Like people were just pumping out these movies <laughs> with some swiftness. And so... Uh, Grace Kelly had like a ton of movies coming out within like this very small time frame of just a couple of years and was getting quite a bit of acclaim for them. And I think she's really great in this movie. So you would think that this would be a huge kind of like 
high point of her career. But her film career was essentially done. In 55, I think, is when she met her husband, Prince Rainier III of Monaco. And unlike good old Jeffries in this movie, he knew a good thing when he saw it and was like, yeah, I I will be with this lady. (laughs) And yeah, she was Princess of Monaco. The film career was was done. She did come, I think she did do like narration for a documentary much later on, but then of course, tragically passed in a horrific car accident. It's one of those things where it's just it's so wild to think of someone like at such a high point in their career. And then they'd be like, well, that was great. Now I'm going to go over here and be a princess. <laughs> um, and, you know, like you said, it, she, she's just kind of an icon. I, I totally agree that this is also a movie that for me handles rewatches incredibly well because there are these little details that you get to pick up on. And I think with each rewatch, I really come to appreciate on a different level the impact that this film had in terms of these types of thrillers, their structure and the way that they're executed. Hitchcock and Your Window aren't the only kind of your thrillers in the game and not the first to really play on these themes of voyeurism but was really the landmark or a landmark. We're going to be talking about a remake, but it's also, you know, you have films like Disturbia that came out, I want to say like in the late 90s, maybe the early aughts with Shia the Early Le- aughts, um, yeah, a young Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, this idea of kind of the approach to voyeurism, even like the girl in the window, or I think it's the woman in the window, girl on the train. <laughs> All of these really, I think, kind of fit within this realm. So one of those things that is just really interesting to see how that impact, you know, really kind of cemented itself there. And I think a lot, you know, that can be said for a lot of Hitchcock's films. So the, I, I guess the only other thing that I want to talk about in terms of maybe some background. So while Stewart and Kelly had collaborated with Hitchcock in other films, so had Hayes, the screenwriter who was nominated for an Oscar. So Hayes adapted this, adapted the screenplay from a story written by Cornell Woolrich, a story called It Had to Be Murder. And He collaborated with Hitchcock on three other films, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hitchcock was really specific on the people that he wanted to collaborate with. If he had a good experience, he would definitely ring you up again. I guess, is there, in terms of the movie, so we talked about our initial reactions, we talked about maybe where it ranks within our ranking of Hitchcock films. Like I said, I I would rank it really, really high. I would maybe put Rope and Psycho on that same tier. No doubt. I, and maybe for a different podcast episode, I really appreciate Rope. Yes. uh, As an underrated Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
It is also funny that I noticed when I list my favorite Hitchcocks, it's vertigo, rear window, rope. And it's like Jimmy Stewart is uh, kind of the common denominator there other than the director. So I think I have a type. Yeah, you have a Jimmy Jams obsession and it's (laughs) fine. Yeah, and I think that one of the cool things about, you know, these films is that in doing a lot of research and, and trying to find, like, you know, what some other people had to say about Rear Window, it is really interesting the way that these other films get talked about in part. Another piece that I will link in the show notes mentions wrote, you know, some kind of compelling little connections there. I mean, obviously, outside of just Stuart. And I want to say that Four Queers did an episode on Rope not too long ago. I will definitely link that in the show notes as well, because I don't think I can go an episode without mentioning my love of the Whore Queers podcast. I think that there's just some some really interesting things within Rear Window that I want to talk about. Now, before we started recording, you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to make sure to do was to give a a shout out to a very specific performance that I could find no research on. I could not find credits. I could not find deep dives, interviews. So I don't know if you want to talk about kind of that performance. Yeah, I similarly looked for uh, any sort of mention in the credits or yeah articles and could find nothing. But I did want to give or show some appreciation for for the dog in Rear Window. That as someone who who has a small dog myself, I I can't imagine putting my dog into a basket from a third floor balcony and using a pulley system to you know lower lower him to the patio below for him to take care of his business and apparently just kind of wander around all day. And then it wasn't until nighttime that they lure him back up and and use the pulley system to bring him back up. Obviously, we know, unfortunately, later the dog meets his demise early, but but even the new puppy at the end, they show them like teaching, teaching them how to uh, to get in the basket. And I just know my own dog would not handle that well. Like, He's way too curious and hyper that if I put him in a basket, he would, um, you know, try to peer over the edge or like um, he just wouldn't sit still. And I would I would be very hesitant to put him in a basket that high up. I think I think it just wouldn't end well. So I, I wanted to give an appreciation for the dog whose name we don't even know. No, I don't think the the character of the dog is given a name, or it's not in the credits to know what what the dog's actual name is either. Yeah, the dog is really interesting because the neighbors, obviously outside of Thorwald, like they're really engaging and interesting, but they don't really do much in terms of the actual plot. I would say outside of Miss Lonely Hearts. It just adds to kind of the fact that Jeffries is really looking out to kind of create this world and be part of this world that he can't physically be a part of. Because this came out in 54, the Americans with Disabilities Act was sometime in the making, and accessibility 
was a complete havoc, aka non-existent. So when we think about having a broken leg or any kind of mobility issue and it completely shutting down the ability to leave your home outside of certain circumstances, because we have things like ADA, because we have made so many vast improvements in terms of what is specifically mandated for access, as well as what just people have the ability to get to for resources and services to help them get from point A to point B if they need it. It's it's kind of like when you are really, really sick and you don't want to leave. And so you're watching TV and this was like his television program that he was watching his neighbors. And, you know, he was never really alone because he would have Stella there who absolutely loved Stella because she was very much you are such a foolish and ridiculous person. However, you are probably paying me for my services. And I'm just going to tell you how it is. And you're going to appreciate it because you need me. And of course, Lisa. I really like those characters too, because they seem just like we're only getting visions of these other characters, specifically the women. These are two women that we really, that I feel really, really well developed. And so many of the things that I found written about Rear Window talk about Lisa being like the emotional center of the film, which I found really interesting. Yeah, Lisa is delightful. Stella, as you mentioned, with a lot of homespun wisdom, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Common sense, one-liners. And as my wife and I watched it last night, commented because Stella describes herself as an insurance company nurse. Obviously, 50s is before our time. So I, we were very curious as to like what the logistics of that were. Insurance companies nowadays, I don't think, I don't know, are viewed more as like a almost predatory yeah. entity, whereas it almost seems like they were a benevolent type of situation back then. If they're sending a nurse out to to tend to him as he recovers from his broken leg. Yeah. No, that's that's a really interesting point. And I do recall that line, but I guess I hadn't really thought about it. And I think this is kind of, you know, I guess this is us kind of segueing into more of the disability kind of components that we see in Rural Window. But one of the things that I found really interesting or, you know, kind of going along with that thought was how with the insurance aspect, you know, there's been such a shift to home and community based services. That's always been like the important element now is making sure that the kind of care that that you're able to get the care that you need, the kind of care that you need in your home, kind of the way that you you need that care. It's much less regimented where I'm sure in the 50s, it was very specific of this is who you get, when you get them, what they do specifically, and that's it. So I I did find that interesting because they have such an interesting dynamic. Now, he's been injured now for six weeks, and it was an on-the-job injury, we learn at the very beginning. So I wonder, like, what were Workman's Comp 
type situation because he worked with a paper, I believe, or a magazine. Yeah. And, and they, which I'll get more into that. I think when we talk about the remake and kind of like the job dynamics, because I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. What was workman's comp? Did they have to pay for him because he was, he was on assignment for them? So many unanswered little variables there that I, question because maybe that's the insurance component maybe it's like well this is what you know the insurance of work says this is who i get but they do have a really great back and forth and she obviously really cares about him and i always find the moment where she's i think it's like rubbing the like oil and the lotion on him really it's really interesting because i think that that's an element of care that is often overlooked when we talk about you know the kind of care that's needed on a day-to-day for someone who can't you know has very limited mobility or the ability to like you know shower and bathe on their own and need support he seems really comfortable just shirt off let me lay him (laughs) on bed and you can just like rub me down yeah, clearly they've had a, a routine established if it's been, yeah, six weeks, like you said. Yeah, but he just, I don't know, like the character of Jeffrey seems, I, I just found, I found that interesting. Cause it, to me, he didn't seem like the kind of guy that would feel really comfortable with that level of vulnerability. Because it's something that he really struggles with in his relationship with Lisa. Right. Lisa is like, yo. We are together. Put a ring on it. Let's make this something. And she's even willing to like give up her career. I'll travel with you. It's not a big deal. And he's like, you can't handle it. It's not for <laughs> you. Why are men? And, but he kind of uses that as an excuse, but yet he's constantly like, all right, I'm going to kind of withhold this kind of certain level of emotional intimacy, but I kind of want to keep you in. I'm going to keep kind of baiting you to come back. And she really loves him. And she does. It's like when she's leaving after they have that fight and he's, you said goodbye and not later. Good and, night. Right? Yeah. And you're going to, you're going to come back. Right. And she's like, no, <laughs> not until tomorrow night. Bye till then. So yeah, she obviously really cares about them, but she's a very strong person. She kind of goes after what she wants when she, uh, one of the things that the plot synopsis I think doesn't really hit on is that it does take some convincing to get Lisa and Stella kind of sold on this idea that something has happened uh, to Mrs. Dorwald across the way. They think, yeah, she's gone away. Um, they, we see early on when we're kind of getting the viewpoints of the neighborhood and the neighbors that they have kind of this, uh, the Thorwalds have kind of a combative relationship in a lot of ways or antagonistic. Like I mentioned in the plot synopsis, She's bedridden. We never learn anything about her necessarily. Um, but, you know, her husband is kind of responsible for her care. And so there's some moments where, you know, there's some back and forth and it seems to get really tense. And that's, I think, part of what raises a red flag for Jeffries. He's like, hmm, yeah. 
they didn't, you know, they didn't have the energy of the other couples. They seemed a little more antagonistic towards each other. Um, and it takes a little bit of time. But for Lisa, the deal, the kind of the, the thing that really gets her sold on this deal is she's like, well, no, she left her, her purse. No woman leaves her purse. Her favorite bag and her jewelry. Yeah. Unless you're going to the hospital, you always have makeup with you. And all of these things, she's like, no, I, this is, there's obviously something very wrong. Um, she did not pack her contour. No. <laughs> um, but I like that they're able to kind of take that journey for themselves. And Stella's kind of the same thing. Although I think that she's just more like, this is just fun. Like, <laughs> I'll go dig in the flower garden. I'll go do this. Like, what if? Um, Because I trust you. I'm sure that you, like, I see the way that you're peeping. You've seen things I haven't. So maybe there is more to this. Um, But, yeah, I, I like, I like that there is this, um, I think, real sense of closeness between the three. Um, and they each kind of contribute equally to, you know, how everything transpires. Um, and I like that because it's not necessarily guided by one person kind of pushing everything. They each kind of say, oh, yes, um, this makes sense. Let's go do this. Um, and I think that one of the things, and, and maybe this can be a point that we start talking about the remake. So when uh, Jeffries first mentions, you know, kind of this theory that he thinks the wife has been murdered by the husband, um, you know, there's kind of this dismissal of, you know, you're hallucinating, you saw things that you, you're seeing things that didn't actually happen um not in a real pointed way but more of a like you're just going stir crazy or it's cabin fever um and in comparison to the remake one of the elements of that is that it gets very pointed with the medication we never see i don't think we ever see jeffrey's like take any pain medication or we see him drink some booze but yeah so it's more like you're just going like you're you're cooped up you need to calm down i didn't know if you had any kind of thoughts on how that plays into the story well, i do think it's interesting um along those lines where you mentioned earlier like it's sort of his television show that he um is watching out his window that I don't know. Do I need to describe what Hitchcock Truffaut is? I, yeah, absolutely. So any self-respecting Hitchcock fan uh, <laughs> has watched or read um, the interviews that famous French director, Francois Truffaut did with uh, Alfred Hitchcock um, back in the fifties, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And so Hitchcock himself sort of describing sort of the structure of how rear window goes with like the camera shots that they use that there's sort of a cycle of showing Jimmy Stewart, you know, looking out into this microcosm of a world. Um, and then we see what he's looking at, the action that's taking place. And then it goes back to him for his reaction. And so um, sort of the, the subtleties of that, that, and I'm more or less quoting here from Hitchcock Truffaut that, uh, they take a close-up of Stuart looking out the window at a little dog, 
that's being lowered in a basket back to Stuart, who has a kindly smile. But if in the place of the little dog, you show a half naked girl exercising in front of her open window and you go back to a smiling Stuart again, this time he's seen as a dirty old man. Mm-hmm. So the sort of, you know, appreciating the, the subtlety and, um, you know, really how good of a job that Jimmy Stewart does as an actor, you know, he's confined like the, um, like he's physically confined to, you know, this one small apartment. And yet mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of nuance and um, um, yeah, subtlety to his performance that I think is um, underappreciated. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think he's very good in selling, I think like these very small moments in a big way. Like when he's seeing something, the way that the, the way that his reaction is registered is really cool because it becomes like, it's a way, um, and you know, because of his broken leg, he's not able to leave and it puts the viewer in kind of his vantage point. We don't leave the apartment either. The only time that we get outside is that final scene when he falls. And then we actually come in to the window and we see that he now has two broken legs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really like that that adds to this sense of confinement and this sense, like I said, he's not alone because Lisa or Stella is always kind of around. Sometimes Doyle. Yeah, sometimes Doyle. Um, although he's really kind of quickly in and out because he just kind of a dick. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and he, he just, he's the one that just flat out is like, stop it. You're being absolutely ridiculous. I've done my job. Here's what I know. Here are the facts. Stop it. Just stop. And so they, they do kind of have a tense relationship. Although you could tell that they are friends and that at you know a crucial moment uh doyle's like oh god damn it he was right (laughs) um i suck at my job (laughs) um so yeah i i like that we're as part of you know again this disability element to the film in other episodes i've talked about you know how a certain element of the plot or the way that a film you know the viewpoint that we're in really does showcase a sense of isolation or confinement that can come with disability whether it be something that is temporary like a broken leg or something that's you know lifelong (laughs) so i appreciated how that was really kind of the integral kind of view that we had and it kind of makes sense <laughs> with then how he interacts like i said with lisa you're like she's great she makes perfect sense she's i think the plot synopsis calls her a socialite but she's a model i think <laughs> so right because she's on the cover of a magazine that's in the apartment and she's she comes in like dressed to the nine she's out kind of networking for work so you here's this woman that is kind of coming to the table with everything but you kind of understand that because we're in jeffrey's space just that added sense of claustrophobia and what that does mentally like you do feel towards the end of the film you're like 
I don't like. I just am watching this uh, in the last rewatch. I honestly noticed myself thinking, like, I wonder how his apartment smells. <laughs> um, like, it's got to, like, is it musty? Because it's super hot. He's in a cast. That's got to be real ripe um, and gross. And itchy, and, apparently. Oh, yeah. Um, and his cast is up really high, too. Like, it goes. Yeah, like, above his hips, I think. Yeah. So... I, again, it's about kind of this, you know, feeling kind of immersed in in understanding kind of what that is like. It's uncomfortable. He wants to get out as much as we kind of want to bust out and get out into that courtyard, get some fresh air, talk to people. Um, So you kind of understand how he gets really persnickety. and snippy with people. And I also think that one of the interesting things in terms of the, that sense of isolation and having it, especially in this film kind of coupled with the voyeurism. And this was a thought that struck me. Um, just this rewatch, honestly. And I think part of it was also pairing it with, the TV remake, um, you know, the focus on the outside world, I think, is obviously part of the fact that he he's he can't leave. He physically is kind of confined to the space. But I think that the other piece is that he sees himself as broken. Like one of the first shots of the film is seeing the cast with the the line "Here lies the broken bones of Nathan Jeffries," and he views himself as kind of broken. And I think maybe Lisa has a line that echoes that as well. Um, which is, you know, as part of what I talked about earlier with kind of calling him out and being like, you know, you, you, you're going stir, stir mad here. We need to do something. Um, you need to calm down. You're being too much. So, I I find that really interesting and in how it all kind of pairs together because um the remake does I think something really different with that. And so it made me kind of view how it plays out in this film a lot different. So yeah, should we delve into the the remake? Yeah. So, like I said, I was really excited in discovering the remake starring Christopher Reeve, like I said, after his accident. Um, it wasn't his first, um, film or, um, I think he'd also done some voiceover work, um, you know, in the time between this was made and his accident as well. But this was, um, I think his first film that he was producing. And he also, as producer, as an executive producer, um, when I think he was offered the role and he was kind of in conversations about it, he said no. 
he's like, no offense, the script isn't great. It's very melodramatic. <laughs> I don't like the portrayal of this character. It doesn't make any sense. It is not the human centipede medically accurate. And no. So he was able to then, um, you know, contribute to the script. They're like, all right, we'll, we'll rewrite. You share your experiences. We can make sure that it becomes, um, you know, a little bit more kind of in the vein that you're looking for, because that's really important to us. Um, because I mean, obviously that's why he was approached for the role. Um, Overall, much of the structures of the films are similar to exactly the same. Now, I will say at the very beginning, um, it's very much, um, it's very monkey shines. Uh, Kevin, have you seen George Romero's classic monkey shines? I have. It's been a while. Um, but yes. It's incredible. Um, I love that movie. I love that monkey. Um, <laughs> but in comparing it to Monkey Shines, so Monkey Shines deals with, um, this man who is involved in this accident, um, is paralyzed and then as part of his recovery process, gets a service animal. That is a capuchin monkey. Um, there is no capuchin monkeys in the remake of Rear Window, but there is a sequence very similar to the beginning of Monkey Shines, where we see um, kind of some of that rehab process. Um, it's very similar. Um, that what what kind of the depiction of the rehab process, which I found really cool. Um, you also get this conversation about, um, you know, home modifications and renovations so that the home is suitable for him to live in uh, after he's discharged. Very similar to Monkey Shines, where, you know, he comes home from the hospital and they're walking him through, like, this is how this new shower works. This is all of these new things. I would say that one of the deficits initially, and it's not a huge deficit, but it's one of the things that stood out to me. And it feels weird to, to phrase it this way. And I'm sure there's a much better way to phrase it. So the film came out, this remake of Rear Window came out in 98. And Reeves' accident was in 95. So he had lived with his disability now for a small number of years. With that, I think this, there, there's really no read of this being a new and really challenging kind of experience because it's something that he's used to. He's been through that hard stuff and that's really hard to kind of capture i think uh if you have gone through something and then to come back and and act like this is a new and and challenging and scary and different thing 
that's hard. And I think that that's one of the elements that was missing in the very beginning of the film is that it's trying to get us to buy into this that, you know, this is a completely new way of life for this person, but he seems very comfortable with it. And I say that's just because you definitely get the sense that in the original 54 version, Jeffries is very uncomfortable. Um, we see that in a lot of different ways. You could tell this is not something he's used to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, forget what. Christopher Reeve's character's name is um, in the remake, but um, yeah, you do get a sense that he's comfortable with it, although he does on at least a couple of occasions make reference to how he's very confident that you know, science is going to advance and he's going to be eventually you know, cured or I forget the terminology that he uses, but yeah. And, I mean, and that's interesting because obviously Reeves was a huge, huge advocate for innovation in therapies and treatments for spinal cord injuries. I mean, the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation. Um, mm-hmm. So I I kind of understand that. Um, and I think that that's, you know, uh, Reeves, even before his accident, was very um, kind of active in kind of social and political activism. Um, I did just a little bit of reading about him. Cause, I mean, really, all I knew about him was that he was Superman. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome. And I knew about his accident. And I had seen some of his other stuff. Um, but I didn't really know anything kind of like outside of that. So reading about some of his kind of political and social, um, activism and, and the things that he was really interested in and really passionate about, um, and raising awareness for was really fascinating. Um, you know, he was part of a, uh, kind of this core group that started an organization of actors that was like, okay, so we want to be active politically. We want to talk about issues um, because we are humans in the world and is our right, but we have a platform. Um, We have a certain level of visibility and we need to do it responsibly. Um, And I found that really interesting. Um, so, yeah, um, I, he, just really a fascinating person, and I think in looking at some of the reviews that I read, there was a few reviews that I read for the TV movie, and one, maybe, 
maybe I'm feeling oversensitive um, and looking at it through a very specific kind of vision. Uh, but they talked about, um, you know, it's fine as a TV movie, but Reeves acting isn't that great, but it's all you can do. It is very much like that tone. And to me, I'm like, I, I actually think he's quite good. I agree. I thought his acting was fine. It's tough, right? Like, when you remake a, like an all-time classic movie, like the bar is set really high. So, like, yeah, I mean, it is. It's a made-for-TV movie. I mean, it is. It does kind of do it. Um, it's not ever going to be at the level of Hitchcock's Rear Window. Um, but, um. No, I was surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I was surprised that I liked it more than I expected to. Yeah. Like, especially from a disability perspective, like, it's, um, uh, you know, much better at portraying that than the original Rear Window. I mean, uh, that's for obvious reasons. For sure. And I think that that was what I was really interested in. Like, obviously, on one level, it's, hey, you actually cast a disabled actor in a role. Great. Like, I, I hate, I, I hate that it has to, you know, be that way. But that's pretty, I think, very cool that they were able to take a story and really craft it and make these changes to really speak to a completely different but similar experience with disability. So, I mean, obviously, outside of the disability itself, there are some small changes that I think really emphasize um, this. So, like I said, at the, you get at the beginning, um, you know, your kind of standard backstory and setup. So uh his character's name is Jason Kemp. Um instead of Nathan Jeffries. And he's in a car accident. He's a very successful architect. And he leaves work on one Friday and is going to meet up with a client, I think, out in the country. And he gets into a car wreck. The other car crosses the line and he ends up being paralyzed from the neck down. And so the movie starts with him recovering and in kind of the rehab facility preparing to go home. And so you get that element. Um, when it switches over to the rear window kind of piece, because once he gets home, he has like the awkward welcome home party, which again is very, that was very monkey shines to me mm-hmm. as well. Um, you, it, it, it then really clicks into, okay, now we're telling real, like this is rear window. And so 
Obviously, because this is done in the 90s, you're now adding in tech. So there's this added level of autonomy and independence, right? He has the ability to do certain things on his own um, that wouldn't have been accessible to Jeffries in the 50s. Um, one thing that stood out to me is when Claudia, who is kind of like the Lisa stand-in, she, she, I guess she's like his coworker, right? That that joined right before his accident, um, and he has like no. <laughs> I guess they met like the day of the accident in the meeting, and he has no recollection. He has no recollection. I think of like that day. Um, he only remembers like a little bit before, and then waking up afterwards. So she has been working on one of his projects while he's been in recovery. And so she comes over and she just walks in. So she goes and says, Hey, your door was unlocked. I'm, I hope you don't mind that I walk in. And he's like, well, I have to like, my door is never locked. I have AIDS. I have a nurse. I have delivery people that have to come in and out. I found this really a fascinating kind of, I don't know, an interesting kind of take on the voyeurism aspect because in the original rear window, the voyeurism is very like creepy. An invasion of privacy. It's creepy an invasion of privacy in the remake. But here is a character that's really speaking to this idea of like, well, I have no privacy. People just show up, come into my home space whenever they deem it's appropriate for them to do so. Um, so I think it, you know, we have a slightly different perspective. But he very clearly knows he's like, yeah, this is creepy. He calls himself the peeping Tom at one point um, and really doubles down on kind of like, yes, I know this is gross and I'm kind of okay with it. <laughs> yeah, his setup is uh, <laughs> something else with the, the camera and uh, and all of that. But uh, even when the detective shows up and sees it, he's just like, I guess. <laughs> yeah, dude. I know. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess. Like, have fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he, like, literally says, like, I don't want to. He's like, it gets real fun at nighttime. <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, it's it's creepy. But I, I did appreciate that idea bringing in that this is also someone that's dealt with invasion of privacy. Because it's obviously not going to be the same situation that Jeffries was in, right? Like, he would probably be able to lock his door. And then, you know, when Stella would show up, when Lisa would show up, they would have to let him know. Uh, knock at the door. He would have to find his way to get to the door. A whole process ensued. Who's to say? Who's to know? <laughs> but, I, yeah, that was something that stood out to me. The other thing is that in the original rear window 
at the very, very beginning, when we're kind of learning what's happened to Jeffries, he's on the phone with his boss at the magazine. And because his boss is called to be like, hey, you did it. You're recovered. He's like, you are ridiculous. No, call back next week. I have one week left. You can't do math. Um, and he's like, oh, well, that's disappointing because I have this really cool job that you could go on, but you can't. I'm sorry. And he's like, well, but I could. He's like, no, you can't. Sorry. <laughs> it's been I literally offered to take pictures <laughs> on the back of a water buffalo. <laughs> yeah. And you should... the boss is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I mean, at the same time, like, again, going back into that workman's comp, I did not do research into what those laws look like <laughs> at the time. Maybe they were just like, look. We're already in deep here. You got injured on the job. I cannot send you on a buffalo. Do you know what that would do to our <laughs> premium? Do you know how that would look? But it was also the 50s, so who knows? Maybe that was an appropriate thing. But yeah, he's literally like, uh, and, and, and I think it's a valid thing. Jeffrey is like, I take pictures. With my hands and my eyes and arms primarily, like those things still very much are okay, uninjured. Like I can still go on assignment. We'll just have to figure out a way to do it. And they're like, no, absolutely not. See ya in a week. Hopefully we have some work for you. Um, to where in the remake, that's not even a thing. He, you know, is like, we get the setup with, uh, when, at the very beginning, when he's in, uh, the, the rehab facility, uh, with his ex-wife. So his ex-wife has kind of been helping him while he's in recovery and kind of like, <clears throat> doing some of the business of things. Uh, while he recovers, they do not have um, <clears throat> a really, I think, poor relationship. They seem to get along really great, um, really respectful. Um, so, but she's like, yes, you are a very successful architect um, and you have money re like doing elements of your home so that you can live there has been very expensive <laughs> i am also your ex-wife and you pay me alimony um like i am very concerned about monies they have a conversation about it where she's like yeah it's kind of not a cool thing for me to like put those concerns on you at that time probably not the approach i should have taken could have come up with a more uh, finessed way to talk about the financials at a better time. Uh, but when he's checking out and they're like, all right, well, now you just go home and rest. He's like, no, now I go home and I work. Because did you see my bill? <laughs> like, who was paying this? You, your mom? No, me. 
I am. I have job. You better make sure I get paid. Um, and he does. He works. Um, and so it's a very different thing. He's able to work from home. He has Claudia coming in as they're, you know, kind of collaborating. Um, so it's, I thought that was a really cool, I think, kind of component where that wasn't necessarily like, you know, you're completely now cut off from the world. He was able to work. He was able to have kind of all of these other things going on. And so it was really only like a certain time of day or night when he would really focus in on what was happening around the kind of neighborhood he was in. And also, like, another kind of difference in that, and I think it's part of it, is that the a lot of the other characters aren't as defined, like the neighbors. Um, obviously, outside of the kind of couple that's standing in for the Thorwalds, um, which would be, um, I think it's Eileen and Julian Thorpe. Um, he's a sculptor. And she, she's not, she's dealing with addiction, um, alcoholism, and I think there's something else that they casually mentioned. But she's, you know, a homebody. She's not necessarily better in the way that um, we were supposed to understand Thorwald's wife in the original film. So, um but we focus primarily on them. We're not getting like the Miss Lonely Hearts story um, playing out. We don't have a dog in a basket. Right. I do think that was the biggest. Yeah. Um, um, shortcoming, I guess, like comparing mm-hmm. the remake to the original that, yeah, we don't, we don't care about the side characters or we don't, get enough information about them. Like they're all conveniently, you know, spending most of their days directly in front of the window so Mm -hmm. we can see what they're doing. But um, yeah, the guy who's on his computer um, across the hall from the Thorpes and um, yeah, the people um, who are like, uh getting ready to you know have a a pg-13 moment and they uh they lower the blinds but conveniently you can still see through the blinds like yeah uh, they aren't there it was kind of like just a, a yeah i i feel like a lot of these initial kind of establishing of who like that these characters exist is really in like kind of homage to the original because it doesn't go anywhere. We don't learn anything about these characters necessarily by what we see of them um, because we only get like these small moments where we see like what's happening, you know, with that couple. Um, anything like that. It's, I, I agree. I think it's, it's one of those shortcomings um, another kind of interesting, as we're talking about side characters. So you have, um, Antonio, who is, uh, kind of Jason's main 
aide at home. And he, I think he switches off with the nurse, Allison. I think, right. like, Antonio is there during the day, and then Allison is there at night. And Antonio is a really, I, I think, of the side characters that really work, Antonio, I think, is a really great Stella um, you know, kind of representation in this film. Right. You actually get conversations with him. He's hilarious. He has a really good rapport, a similar kind of thing that we saw in the original, uh, with Jason. It's just really nice. And, um, again, though, because you're dealing with a, a slight tweak in how reliant I think Jeffries was on Stella and Lisa for anything kind of outside, um, you know, Antonio doesn't necessarily serve that similar kind of function. Um, he's not relied on to like do any recognizance across the street. He does come in at the end um, to uh, kind of help in the final battle between Julian and uh, Jason and all of that. But I I still really found that character um, to work. And I also really liked the idea. I, I, and again, I'm sure this is probably something that, you know, was... Um, a contribution from Reeves was making sure that those dynamics between, you know, those people that were kind of his in-home supports, like that, that seemed authentic and was similar to his experience. Um, so that all kind of worked. Um, even though we don't necessarily get, um, you know, a ton with the Allison character, you know, I still think that she's great. And I think that Antonio, even though he's not serving the exact same purpose as Stella works, I think in terms of the side character, it's really just those neighbors that I think are done a huge disservice. Agreed. And so I guess the other element here is again, the with the remake you don't have a complete kind of lisa uh stand in in that you know they when we meet them they have this established relationship uh it's a relationship that we see develop throughout the film <laughs> which in some ways you could even argue that it's still very similar to the original because we get to see lisa and jeffries relationship develop in some really interesting ways. Um, but they were co-workers. Um, she knew him. He didn't know her necessarily. Um, and she kind of takes a liking to him. She starts hanging out with him a lot. Um, Claudia and Jason start hanging out. She comes over. She makes some dinner or, you know, kind of walks through how to make dinner. And you could tell this is in, like, before, 
like the internet was real wide and vast and accessible because now it's like pull up like pull up an epicurious video on how to boil water and make pasta like that's what you do i did find it interesting that (laughs) she showed up with like the exact right ingredients to make but had no idea what to do with them but right (laughs) it's like oh i got tomatoes and basil and this and that and this and that like oh okay great she's like yeah I got nothing. Yeah. How no. did you know to get those things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. And I like that he's like, oh, okay, well, get a pot. What is a pot? <laughs> <laughs> so, God, the scene was a little bit just like, come on, guys. Um, Like, I, I, at some point, I would have been like, you know what? I may be tired of takeout, but we're getting takeout because <laughs> it's too much. Um. But yeah, so their dynamic, I think, kind of comes together differently. But she kind of, I think there's also, though, uh, a lot of similarities between her and Lisa because she kind of comes to some of the natural conclusions the same way that um, Lisa does. Because she's like, oh, she left that behind. She wouldn't leave that behind. That's weird. Um so something is seriously wrong. Um, and she's much more, I think, from the jump, uh, willing to listen to him. Because I think she kind of, like, understands that he really doesn't have, like, why would he lie about what he's saying? Um, and one of the things that I mentioned before, though, when he's talking to the police officer, um, they ask what medications he's on. Because he's on medications. And they're like, oh, well... Nothing that you say is credible because you take like Valium and something else. Yeah. It was Valium and and some other, I think, medication to like help with sleep or pain. Um, And they're like, yeah, no, we can't. Nothing that you say has any validity. I'm sorry. Um, And she doesn't really go down that path. She's like, Oh, well, show me what you see on your camera. And again, if I walk into someone's like residence and they have a video camera set up at their window <laughs> to watch their neighbors, I'm like, it's been great. Here's <laughs> all of my files. Call me if you need anything or you can email me. They were emailing. Um, Email me. I'll send things to you. I will not interact with you on a personal level because I'm very creeped out by what I'm seeing right now. Um, But no, she's like, okay. She's like, do you see people like having sex? Yes. Cool. I'll be over at nine. Um, It's yeah. Their dynamic is is different. Um, And Claudia is played by Daryl Hannah. So you do have some you know, for a um, TV movie that has some pretty big names, surprise is not talked about a little bit more. Um, but, um, yeah, I did kind of struggle at the end thinking, like, did, you know, is this crossing any boundaries of, like, he was with the organ, like, like, what is his leadership within this firm that they're both a part of 
is there like a power imbalance that should be troubling to me because she was a newer hire? It does feel like the relationship might be a little problematic. uh, Yeah. From a work standpoint. But I mean, if they're like cool with him setting up a camera and all of that stuff, I, yeah, I, I bet they're off now. Yeah, it's yeah, I don't know. So yeah, I mean, I think there's some. I was really kind of like you mentioned when we started talking about the film. I I liked it quite a bit. I thought that Reeves' um, performance was really good. He has this really great way of delivering like these comedic lines that just have like that little bite to them as like, yes, this is someone that uses humor to kind of explain and talk about kind of their experience being someone with a disability and has complete comfort with it. Um, even if it makes some people feel a little uncomfortable. Um, so I, I found that kind of funny. Um, because yeah, a, a lot of us do use humor. Sometimes we say things that, you know, someone will be like, how can you say that? That's awful. And you're like, oh, I should explain. I don't mean it this way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm coming at it from this perspective. Um, but yeah, he's, I really like that there's a bit more of that kind of edge to the humor. Um, and there's a little bit of that in the original too. I mean, I mentioned the cast with, um, you know, the broken bones comment in the original. Like there is some, some moments like that in the original as well. So I'm glad that that I think transferred over so perfectly. Awesome. So I guess to kind of wrap things up and talking about these two movies. Now, I haven't mentioned um, a lot of resources and stuff that I kind of read in prep for the episode. As always, these are going to be linked in the show notes because I read a lot of different articles. Um, there are a couple that are behind paywalls, I think, and I hate that. Um, but, you know, if this is something that... Uh, as you're kind of looking at the the sources and you're like, oh, I would be interested in reading that and it's behind a paywall, let me know. And maybe there's a way that I can uh, make sure to get it to you because I did find a lot of what I read really, really interesting. Um, one article I haven't mentioned that I, that kind of just was a trip was an article that talked about the music in Hitchcock films and how it represents um kind of disability and how Hitchcock used it to say certain things about the experience of these characters using uh, Rear Window and Vertigo as kind of like the main um kind of examples and talking about the different pieces of the score that are used um and what the music itself represents like using music in this specific way, uh, communicate. It's just super fascinating. Um, I've been getting more and more into like scores and stuff. So I found that really cool. Um, so yes, all of that will be linked in the show notes. 
I think the only other thing that I would say, um, and this is in one of the, uh, I think it's in the New York Times piece about um, the t- the TV remake and talking about kind of Reeves' experience and working on uh, the film. So they talked about um, uh, kind of, you know, he, because the, we're with, he's basically in every frame, every shot of the film. Um there's not really going to be a time that you could really shoot around him. So they said, yeah, like he had his full kind of actor's schedule. Um, But they mentioned that they had to do some uh, kind of uh, special things around access to set because they're like, due to his disability and, you know, some various health concerns, we want to make sure that, you know, we're limiting certain access to the sets so that, um, you know, things remain safe and healthy. So I found that kind of a little interesting. They don't really go into to a huge amount of detail, but I found that really interesting. I did find it kind of odd that they were like, yeah, he's doing a full, like a full schedule. I'm like, well, yeah, he's an actor in this movie and which is, Primarily, he's in every moment of. Yes, yes, he will act in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I and I don't know. Um, I mentioned that uh, the original Rear Window was nominated. I'm doing a quick look. I just pulled up IMDb, and this is fascinating audio content. Um me scrolling through an IMDb page. Um, I want to see. I think this was maybe nominated for something as well. But I'm not seeing it straight off. Um, oh, because I'm on this page. The content gets even more compelling. Oh, nominated for one primetime Emmy. Well, it says, oh, yes. Um, so, yeah. It was a nominee uh, for music uh, for the Primetime Emmys. Uh, Reeves was nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. And... Won it. Yeah, won. And was a nominee for the Golden Globe. Uh, as well as uh, the, the overall uh, feature was nominated for an Edgar Allan Poe Award. So, very cool, I think. Um, previous to this, uh, I think the first, uh, feature film, I think the only feature film that, uh, Reeves would do, um, live action feature film, uh, was In the Gloaming. And I think that also won. Um, no, I'm wrong. That, that was also, I think, made for TV. There was another, I think his first project, um, following his accident, um, he had won, um, some awards for as well, which, I mean, the guy's a talent. So, um, yeah, it's just really kind of interesting to see that, you know, I think it's a, it's a story that continues to resonate. Um, and one of the things that makes remake so interesting to me is that the way that we, it's interesting to see how remakes kind of come 
about, you know, one of the things that when you look at kind of like the timing of certain remakes, it's really, um, you know, these films are being retold because they're speaking about something that is relevant to the time. Um, it's not just, uh, we need to do a remake. What's a film that, you know, hasn't been remade in X amount of time. It's usually driven by, oh, well, there's some relevancy here. So that's why you see like a lot of, um, you know, kind of the sci-fi, uh, remakes, the sci-fi thriller, um, and, and kind of outer space alien horror films from like the fifties being remade in kind of the 70s and 80s because there was something that was really speaking to an experience um, in society at that time. So I really find that, um, you know, especially with the introduction now of tech, that the voyeurism and how all of that kind of plays into uh, the remake is is fascinating. So yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that we watched it. I think it it was definitely a worthwhile watch. I watched it on Tubi. Um, so I know lots of folks have the Tubi. Um, so and you watched it on. I watched it on Hoopla. Um, right. You have a public library card, depending on where you live. Um. um like through the DC public library, you get access to a streaming service called Canopy. Mm-hmm. Um, but DC residents, like there's a reciprocity agreements with the libraries. So if you live in DC, you can also get a library card for Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and their library system has access to a streaming service called Hoopla. Um, it's all free. And um, yeah, there's different content on each of those services, but it's, it's great as far as getting uh, free streaming content. Yeah, we may not be a state, but we have <laughs> that. Um, so yeah, um, I guess, yeah, we've been, we've been chatting for a moment. So, uh, probably time to wrap it up. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I love when, when I'm able to have someone, uh, on the pod because I think having these kinds of conversations is so much fun and probably a lot more intriguing uh, to folks to listen to than me just kind of having these conversations with Kubrick the cat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure because Kubrick the cat is also the podcast editor, uh, she will cut that. Um, but I said what I said. So yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. This has been a delight. We, we haven't hung out in 86 years. It's been a little while. Yeah. Um, so we need to, we need to get together and, and chill. Um, but I'm so excited that you were able to make the time to chat about this film. Like I said, when I was like, uh, I need to do some Hitchcock and I know who I have to, to text about it because anytime that I see a, a screening of something pop up, I'm always like, I will text Kevin. He will be like, I am aware. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always up to talk about Hitchcock and uh, The Crow and uh, any any Hallmark movies that you might want to make an episode about. Oh, The Crow. Um, Devil's Night. (laughs) Um, Good times. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. And, hey, thank you to those listening. 
Um, and a huge thank you to Anatomy of a Scream, the home of Bodies of Horror. As with every episode, gotta get that shout out. Um, so happy to be part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. And like I said, so many great shows on the network that if you listen to this, there's like great content all the time. Um, White Ladies in Crisis, top tier. If you like kind of these like hand that rocks the cradle type thrillers, lots of, and also new shows that are going to be coming out, uh, the line as well. So you'll definitely want to keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, this has been a great way to start off 2023. And I hope that everyone else is having a wonderful uh, kind of start to the new year. And until next time. The Anatomy of the Scream Pod Squad.